Chapter Twenty Four of Wood and Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Wood and Garden: Notes and Thoughts, Practical and Critical of a Working Amateur by Gertrude Jekyll. Chapter Twenty Four. Masters and Men Now that the owners of good places are for the most part taking a newly awakened and newly educated pleasure in the better ways of gardening, a frequent source of difficulty arises from the ignorance and obstructiveness of gardeners. The owners have become aware that their gardens may be sources of the keenest pleasure. The gardener may be an excellent man, perfectly understanding the ordinary routine of garden work. He may have been many years in his place. It is his settled home, and he is getting well on into middle life. But he has no understanding of the new order of things. And when the master, perfectly understanding what he is about, desires that certain things shall be done, and wishes to enjoy the pleasure of directing the work himself, and seeing it grow under his hand, he resents it as an interference, and becomes obstructive, or does what is required in a spirit of such sullen acquiescence that it is equal to open opposition. And I have seen so many gardens and gardeners that I have come to recognise certain types and this one, among men of a certain age, is unfortunately frequent. Various degrees of ignorance and narrow-mindedness must no doubt be expected among the class that produces private gardeners. Their general education is not very wide to begin with, and their training is usually all in one groove, and the many who possess a full share of vanity get to think that, because they have exhausted the obvious sources of experience that have occurred within their reach, there is nothing more to learn, or to know, or to see, or to feel, or to enjoy. It is in this that the difficulty lies. The man has, no doubt, done his best through life. He has performed his duties well and faithfully, and can render a good account of his stewardship. It is no fault of his that more means of enlarging his mind have not been within his grasp, and, to a certain degree, he may be excused for not understanding that there is anything beyond. But if he is naturally vain and stubborn, his case is hopeless. If, on the other hand, he is wise enough to know that he does not know everything, and modest enough to acknowledge it, as do all the greatest and most learned of men, he will then be eager to receive new and enlarged impressions, and his willing and intelligent co-operation will be a new source of interest in life, both to himself and his employer, as well as a fresh spring of vitality in the life of the garden. I am speaking of the large middle class of private gardeners, not of those of the highest rank, who have among them men of good education and a large measure of refinement, 
From among these I think of the late Mr. Ingram of the Beaver Castle Gardens, with regret as for a personal friend, and also as of one who was a true garden artist. But most people who have fair-sized gardens have to do with the middle class of gardener, the man of narrow mental training. The master who, after a good many years of active life, is looking forward to settling in his home and improving and enjoying his garden, has had so different a training, a course of teaching so immeasurably wider and more enlightening. As a boy he was in a great public school, where by wholesome friction with his fellows he had any petty or personal nonsense knocked out of him while still in his early teens. Then he goes to college, and, whether studiously inclined or not, he is already in the great world, always widening his ideas and experience. Then, perhaps, he is in one of the active professions, or engaged in scientific or intellectual research, or in diplomacy, his ever-expanding intelligence rubbing up against all that is most enlightened and astute in men or most profoundly inexplicable in matter. He may be at the same time cultivating his taste for literature and the fine arts, searching the libraries and galleries of the civilized world for the noblest and most divinely inspired examples of human work, seeing with an eye that daily grows more keenly searching, and receiving and holding with a brain that ever gains a firmer grasp, and so acquires some measure of the higher critical faculty. He sees the ruined gardens of antiquity, colossal works of the rulers of imperial Rome, and the later gardens of the Middle Ages, direct descendants of those greater and older ones, some of them still among the most beautiful gardens on earth. He sees how the taste for gardening grew and travelled, spreading through Europe and reaching England, first, no doubt, through her Roman invaders. He becomes more and more aware of what great and enduring happiness may be enjoyed in a garden, and how all that he can learn of it in the leisure intervals of his earlier maturity and then in middle life will help to brighten his later days, when he hopes to refine and make better the garden of the old home by a reverent application of what he has learnt. He thinks of the desecrated old bowling-green cut up to suit the fashion of thirty years ago into a patchwork of incoherent star and crescent-shaped beds, of how he will give it back its ancient character of unbroken repose. He thinks how he will restore the string of fish-ponds in the bottom of the wooded valley just below, now a rushy meadow with swampy hollows that once were ponds, and humpy mounds, ruins of the ancient dikes, of how the trees will stand reflected in the still water, and how he will live to see again in middle hours of summer days, as did the monks of old the broad backs of the golden carp basking just below the surface of the sun-warmed water. And such a man as this comes home some day and finds the narrow-minded gardener, 
who believes that he already knows all that can be known about gardening, who thinks that the merely technical part which he perfectly understands is all that there is to be known and practised, and that his crude ideas about arrangement of flowers are as good as those of anyone else. And a man of this temperament cannot be induced to believe, and still less can he be made to understand, that all that he knows is only the means to a further and higher end, and that what he can show of a completed garden can only reach to an average dead level of dullness compared with what may come of the life-giving influence of one who has the mastery of the higher garden knowledge. Moreover, he either forgets, or does not know, what is the main purpose of a garden, namely, that it is to give its owner the best and highest kind of earthly pleasure. Neither is he enlightened enough to understand that the master can take a real and intelligent interest in planning and arranging, and in watching the working out in detail. His small-minded vanity can only see in all this a distrust in his own powers, and an intentional slight cast on his ability, whereas no such idea had ever entered the master's mind. Though there are many of this kind of gardener, and with their employers, if they have the patience to retain them in their service, I sincerely condole, there are, happily, many of a widely different nature, whose minds are both supple and elastic and intelligently receptive, who are eager to learn and to try what has not yet come within the range of their experience, who show a cheerful readiness to receive a fresh range of ideas, and a willing alacrity in doing their best to work them out. Such a servant as this warms his master's heart, and it would do him good to hear, as I have many times heard, the terms in which the master speaks of him. For just as the educated man feels contempt for the vulgar pretension that goes with any exhibition of ignorant vanity, so the evidence of the higher qualities commands his respect and warm appreciation. Among the gardeners I have known, five such men come vividly to my recollection. Good men all, with a true love of flowers, and its reflection of happiness written on their kindly faces. But then, on the other hand, frequent causes of irritation arise between master and man from the master's ignorance and unreasonable demands. For much as the love of gardening has grown of late, there are many owners who have no knowledge of it whatever. I have more than once had visitors who complained of their gardeners, as I thought quite unreasonably, on their own showing. For it is not enough to secure the services of a thoroughly able man, and to pay good wages, and to provide every sort of appliance, if there is no reasonable knowledge of what it is right and just to expect. I have known a lady, after paying a round of visits in great houses, complain of her gardener. She had seen at one place remarkably fine forced strawberries, at another some phenomenal frame violets, and at a third immense malmaison carnations, 
whereas her own gardener did not excel in any of these though she admitted that he was admirable for grapes and chrysanthemums if the others could do all these things to perfection she argued why could not he do them she expected her gardener to do equally well all that she had seen best done in the other big places it was in vain that i pleaded in defence of her man that all gardeners were human creatures and that it was in the nature of such creatures to have individual aptitudes and special preferences and that it was to be expected that each man should excel in one thing or one thing at a time and so on but it was of no use and she would not accept any excuse or explanation i remember another example of a visitor who had a rather large place and a gardener who had as good a knowledge of hardy plants as one could expect my visitor had lately got the idea that he liked hardy flowers though he had scarcely thrown off the influence of some earlier heresy which taught that they were more or less contemptible the sort of thing for cottage gardens still as they were now in fashion he thought he had better have them we were passing along my flower border just then in one of its best moods of summer beauty and when its main occupants three years planted had come to their full strength when speaking of a large flower border he had lately had made he said i told my fellow last autumn to get anything he liked and yet it is perfectly wretched it is not as if i wanted anything out of the way i only want a lot of common things like that waving a hand airily at my precious border while scarcely taking the trouble to look at it and i have had another visitor of about the same degree of appreciative insight who contemplating some cherished garden picture the consummation of some long hoped-for wish the crowning joy of years of labour said now look at that it is just right and yet it is quite simple there is absolutely nothing in it now why can't my man give me that i am far from wishing to disparage or undervalue the services of the honest gardener but i think that on this point there ought to be the clearest understanding that the master must not expect from the gardener accomplishments that he has no means of acquiring and that the gardener must not assume that his knowledge covers all that can come within the scope of the widest and best practice of his craft there are branches of education entirely out of his reach that can be brought to bear upon garden planning and arrangement down to the very least detail what the educated employer who has studied the higher forms of gardening can do or criticise he cannot be expected to do or understand it is in itself almost the work of a lifetime and only attainable like success in any other fine art by persons of firstly special temperament and aptitude and secondly by their unwearied study and closest application but the result of knowledge so gained shows itself throughout the garden it may be in so simple a thing as the placing of a group of plants 
they can be so placed by the hand that knows that the group is in perfect drawing in relation to what is near while by the ordinary gardener they would be so planted that they look absurd or unmeaning or in some way awkward and unsightly it is not enough to cultivate plants well they must also be used well the servant may set up the canvas and grind the colours and even set the palette but the master alone can paint the picture it is just the careful and thoughtful exercise of the higher qualities that makes a garden interesting and their absence that leaves it blank and dull and lifeless i am heartily in sympathy with the feeling described in these words in a friend's letter i think there are few things so interesting as to see in what way a person whose perceptions you think fine and worthy of study will give them expression in a garden end of chapter twenty four recording by ruth golding end of wood and garden by gertrude jekyll